thanks for coming to Queen City Bicycle Club this month. Christine Hill leads group rides for the Queen City Bicycle Club. And the idea is that um, we get together, women trans femme cyclists, we ride around with this boom box. It's a pretty low key ride, we're not gonna like, wear anyone out tonight. The name Queen City Bicycle Club came from Luis because part of his presentation about bicycle history in Burlington was talking about bicycling clubs in the early 1900s. Thanks, Haley. And one of those clubs is called Queen City Bicycle Club. And there's a photo of all the, the club men lined up outside of Fletcher Free Library. Elite men were the first to take up bicycles. The wealthy men who could afford these expensive machines, who wanted to appear very modern. Luis Vivanco is an anthropology professor at UVM and the author of Reconsidering the Bicycle, an anthropological perspective on a new, old thing. The physical training and control over, especially early on, these high-wheel bicycles was quite substantial. And so one of the ways you could show your distinctions, your social and physical distinction, was to master one of these wheels. And who has time and money to do it? It's wealthy men. I was trying to name the club to be something really inclusive, because um, it used to be called Girls Ride Out, and I wanted to be more inclusive of all genders. And all of a sudden, Queen City Bicycle Club occurred to me. I thought, what an awesome opportunity to completely repurpose this name and have it empower the exact people who were totally not included back in the original Queen City Bicycle Club. A large group of female and non-binary cyclists riding around Burlington on a summer evening. It's fun, maybe even liberating. Many Vermonters felt a similar sense of liberation during our nation's first bike boom in the 1890s. That was when bikes became cheaper and easier to ride. They revolutionized personal transportation and recreation. The mobility a bike offered was especially important to women. But 125 years later, bike culture can still feel like a boys club. I go to a lot of bicycle events, mountain bike festivals and rides and fundraiser rides. And some of them are great. Most of them are painful because it's this really bro-y machismo culture. Christine worked as a mechanic at the Old Spokes Home in Burlington. She also helped launch the city's Green Ride bike sharing program. When someone's like surprised that you're even at an event, it just makes you feel that much less comfortable being there. Like you just kind of want to exist and like be yourself, but people are like, wow, you're here. That's crazy. It's like, is it? I wish it weren't. Today, we'll talk about this invention that brought mobility to millions, and we'll explore the longtime struggle between those who biked for liberation and those who biked for status. This is Before Your Time, presented by the Vermont Historical Society, the Vermont Humanities Council, and VT Digger. I'm your host, Lovejoy. Every episode, we go inside the stacks at the Vermont Historical Society to look at an object from their permanent collection that tells us something unique about our state. 
Then we take a closer look at the people, the events, or the ideas that surround each artifact. Actually, I don't need gloves to pull this paper out. Today, Mary LeBate Rogstad is showing our producer, Ryan Newswanger, a small metal pin from the Historical Society's collections. It's purple and gold and measures about three-quarters of an inch wide. Sort of it's a, it's a circle uh, with wings coming out on either side and the monogram VWC, Vermont Wheel Club. And the Vermont Wheel Club, actually, that name came into existence in 1885. When the first bicycles came to Vermont, riding alone was discouraged. People joined clubs. I was able to find this really interesting article from the Vermont Wheel Club of Brattleboro uh, from the May 1896 issue of the Vermonter. It's really informative, and it is not at all the club that I thought it was before I read this. I mean, it's, it sounds like it's essentially a social club. It says the caliber of young men that they have welcomed into the club, including nearly all of the leading young men of the place and several businessmen, and elements of high social success besides the mental strengthening that comes from such association of bright and progressive young men and such utilization in writing, reading, conversation, and healthful recreation of their leisure moments. Wow. <laughs> so they were looking for a certain type of person. They were looking for a certain type of person. The Vermont Wheel Club was one of many bike clubs that sprung up around Vermont in the 1880s and 1890s. It was probably the most influential biking club in the state, and its members helped lead movements to improve roads in Vermont and allow bikes to be carried on trains. So we can spend as much time or as little as you want up here. But, this but is the bikes these people were riding around. looked a little different from the ones we're used to. So some of the machines in here are, are quite unique. Exactly. This is Glenn Eames, the founder of the Old Spokes Home Bike Shop. Glenn has collected dozens of bicycles that are significant to the sport's history. Back here against the wall, that S-shaped machine, that's one of the first uh, velocipedes built in New York City by um, Calvin Witte. There are two known in the United States, that's one of them. And so this is a top-of-the-line racing bike from England from the late 1930s, and it has a four-speed internal hub. You can hear those paws clicking. Just, just love that lovely sound of the... This is a beautiful um, G&J Light Roadster from 1899. It has a, uh, a very sweet little bell on it, too, as well. Glenn started biking after he left the Navy in the early 1970s. He was looking for a way to quit smoking and get some exercise. Biking did that and more. He bought his first antique bike out of a shop window in New Hampshire. Soon he was hooked on biking history. I discovered uh, how popular cycling was from about 1867 or so until the turn of the 1900s. That four-decade period was just an amazing period of transformation, personal transportation, and the bicycle played a huge role. The first bikes arrived in Vermont in the 1860s. They were known as velocipedes. It's basically two 
wagon wheels, wooden wheels, with a uh, suspension spring and a seat. The Velocipedes had another name, Bone Shakers. They earned this nickname for good reason, wooden wheels on rough roads. People used to uh, do road maintenance by plowing their fields, taking all the stone that cropped up and then just dumping it out on the main highway. And uh, the, the wagon traffic and horse traffic would just grind it into the, to the mud. So Slightly more comfortable were the penny farthings, or ordinary bikes, which were popular in the 1870s and 1880s. These had an enormous front wheel and a small back wheel. When someone says old-fashioned bicycle, you probably picture a penny farthing. They were faster than the bone shakers, but just getting up on the seat was a challenge. Up a couple steps. Glenn took a penny farthing onto the street in the old north end to show us how it's done. He makes it sound easier than it actually is. There's a small step over the rear wheel. So you put your left foot up on the step, you grab the handles, and then you give yourself a little bit of a hop and throw yourself up in the saddle and away you go. You can see a video of this at beforeyourtime.org. It's like pedaling a giant flywheel. So once you get this thing rolling, you're just rolling down the road and you're cruising along at maybe 15 miles an hour. The bigger the wheel, the faster you could go. And people traveled amazing distances on these bikes. They rode across the country. They climbed over and down the Donner Pass in California. Glenn himself has ridden a penny farthing for 100 miles in one day. But it certainly wasn't easy. It's a fixed gear, so you're pedaling all the time. So you can't, like, coast. The way you go downhill on one of those things is to throw your legs over the handlebars. You hit a stone pothole, a dog. All of a sudden, your front wheel stops. You go over the bars and land on your head. The inherent danger of the penny farthing kept the average person from owning one. The other thing is they were quite expensive. It's about six months' wages, say 135 to 150 bucks to buy one of these bicycles. So the first riders were really people of wealth, attorneys, uh, doctors, and, and whatever, and it was mostly a man's club. The clothing style, plus the social norm or etiquette of the day would have prevented women from just going out and riding these things. That changed with the introduction of the safety bicycle in the mid-1880s. These bikes looked more or less like modern bicycles, but it took a little time for them to take hold. They were kind of relegated to the back of the catalogs, you know, because what man would want to ride something like on that little wimpy thing with two equal size wheels? But people soon realized how fast they were, how safe they were, and what a better design they were. And it opened the market to women, of course. As more and more women started riding safety bicycles, the manufacturers responded. This particular bicycle is a late 1890s woman safety bicycle. It's uh, a Stearns Yellow Fellow ladies machine, a Model C. It's got a wooden fender on the rear and then it's a dress guard lacing. That would keep your skirt or bloomers from falling in the uh, rear wheel or in the uh, chains. Bikes changed everything in personal transportation. Sure, there were trains, but they only went to specific points and only at certain times of the day. 
Horses took time to feed, groom, and harness. Bikes were just faster. You know, it was the uh, great emancipator and equalizer. Now everybody, man and woman, could go out and travel wherever they wanted to. People could ride 20 miles out of town, start to meet that woman in the other community, attend a different church, attend different social functions. Uh, the whole strata of uh, society began to change, and a lot of it was from the uh, advent of the safety bicycle. Well, the safety bike comes, prices start dropping, more and more women can take to these things, and they take it on with gusto. This is Luis Vivanco, the anthropologist we heard up top. Luis commutes by bike to his job at UVM. It's giving them unprecedented freedoms. And one of the first things that women take umbrage to is the restricted clothing that they're wearing at the time. And so hand in hand with the rise of bicycling comes this, what's been called the rational clothing movement, which was one manifestation of the suffrage movement. In 1896, equal rights champion Susan B. Anthony said that biking has done more to emancipate women than anything else in the world. A woman on a bicycle, she continued, presents the picture of free and untrammeled womanhood. But not everyone was a fan. There was a backlash among temperance women who saw the bicycle as this threat to morality, public morality. Um, and so they were concerned that there's all these young women who want to get out there and ride their bicycles. And they thought that that would lead to the ruin of these young women as they're, you know, unchaperoned out on city streets. There was one wonderful little excerpt from the Burlington Free Press in 1896 about the challenges of selecting a cycling uh, instructor for, that women in particular would face because, as the article says, any bike shop will send up a quote-unquote oily mechanic to help the purchaser learn how to ride the bike. Um, but as the article continues, it says, you know, falling into the arms of some oily mechanic is violating a sense of propriety. Maybe you should do that with a relative instead. Women weren't the only group challenging the established order. Black wheelmen, uh, black men on bicycles, was a direct challenge to those elite white men who were the early adopters of bikes in the 1880s. The League of American Wheelmen was a national organization that brought together biking clubs from around the country. And this group had real power. They could influence the passage of laws. At one point, the League pushed for national good roads laws, which would require states to make roads safer for bicycles. What happened was by the early 1890s, there were enough black people in the South who were taking to bicycles that the members of the League of American Wheelmen in the South went to the other members and they said, either you institute a no blacks rule for the League of American Wheelmen or we pull out of this thing altogether and you can kiss good roads goodbye. So in 1894, the League of American Wheelmen officially banned African Americans from membership. But these exclusive groups were swimming against the tide. Bikes were no longer an item that only the wealthy could afford. 
that Burlington Bicycle Club that formed in the mid-1880s, a lot of those men were the most important wealthy men of Burlington. They abandoned their club, and they all went and created the the Lake Champlain Yacht Club. This was a a reflection of their desire to have status, right? What drew them to the bike in the first place was status and distinction. But as someone realizes you can get a fancy boat and you can have a yacht, that's an even greater sign of status. The biking boom in the United States lasted from 1890 to about 1910. But near the end of this era, a new, even greater status symbol started to capture our attention. The fetish of the automobile displaces what was back then a fetish around the bike. People were so excited about that. But then the automobile becomes the symbol of advancement and progress. And as a result, we think through automobiles. And there's this sort of evolutionary hierarchy that puts the automobile up here and maybe the motorcycle somewhere here and then the bicycle way down. That ranking has meant that bicyclists have had to fight for space on roads for well over a century. But that doesn't stop loyal riders like Christine Hill. I mean, bikes are just such a practical way to get around Burlington. If you live and work in the downtown area, I mean, everything's like a three mile radius, a 15 minute bike ride. A bike can get you to 80% of the places you need to go in Burlington. Christine was a student at UVM when she first started riding around Burlington. Eventually, biking led her to a new community. A friend told me that there was a shop, Bikercycle Vermont, where you volunteered and they would teach you how to work on bikes in exchange for your time volunteering at the shop. So I just walked in randomly one day and said, you know, I want to learn how to work on bikes. I want to volunteer and started showing up twice a week to the shop to help out. Bike Recycle Vermont is now called the Old Spokes Home Community Workshop. It's right across the street from the Old Spokes Home store on North Winooski Avenue. Install a new brake. Now we got the cable and the housing for the... What I got was a basic education around mechanics for sure, but the real value was that the shop connected all kinds of people in Burlington. And as a student at UVM living on campus for the most part up to that point, living in my little college bubble, I had zero exposure to that. The nonprofit community workshop offers affordable bikes and bike repairs to income eligible Vermonters. And when I was in the shop, I would be working on a stand next to another volunteer who was a, you know, 72-year-old retired researcher, and there would be a 14-year-old neighborhood kid who brought his bike in to fix it himself, and We'd be serving a homeless veteran, and we'd be serving a family of people who had just resettled from West Africa last year. And it was just this unbelievable place where I was interacting with all different kinds of people. I think the wheel is a little loose. The mission of the community workshop underscores that bikes should be for everyone, and it helps reclaim that old sense of liberation and independence that writers first felt in the 1890s. I'm thinking of this one woman, Kathy, who we've served for years and years and years at the Old Spokes Home Community Workshop, who's lived in the Old North End her entire life. And she got a bike from us for, you know, $25 a few years ago, and she comes in every few months to have us tweak it a little bit. I mean, she rides the thing every day in the winter, too. 
Christine said Kathy has a house cleaning business and uses her bike to get to cleaning jobs, which can be miles apart. And over the years, we've added a basket onto the front and baskets on the rear so she can carry her groceries. She does everything on it. And she's completely independent. She's able to, you know, leave and come as she needs to. And she doesn't need a car. So she has, you know, this financial independence as well. Bikes can make practical sense, but they can be a lot of fun, too. The history of mountain biking is fascinating because it was really just a bunch of hippies living in the Bay Area in the 70s who were like, wouldn't it be sweet if we took these old World War II coaster brake bikes and rode them down Mount Tam? And they would ride these things so fast that the hubs in the rear wheel would start smoking. And they would wrap bacon in tinfoil and tape it to the hub to cook the bacon. I mean, they were like long-haired, hippie, renegade. Like, they were just ridiculous. And that's like the most badass thing you can do, is just like ride whatever bike you have hard. And we love that. Bikes were liberating for hippies in California in the 1970s, for women and people of color in the 1890s, for Vermonters in the Old North End today. There's a whole different experience on a bicycle. It's, you know, people often refer to it as, as, that must be how the birds feel. That sensation of minimal effort to produce that wind rushing through your hair. That feeling of total independence. Being able to take yourself to new places and experience new things. For me, like bike touring was the way that I self-actualized. It was when I started camping and carrying everything that I needed to survive on my bike that I sort of came into myself and realized that I was capable of a lot more than I thought. I call it the transformer. It transformed my life and how I see and experience the planet. And it really had a transformative impression on the minds of 19th century men and women. It really changed people's experiences. And you read the accounts of people riding back then and how they experienced the road, etc. And it's contemporary. We're having the same experiences now. Before Your Time is presented by the Vermont Historical Society, the Vermont Humanities Council, and VT Digger. This episode was produced by Ryan Newswanger and Mike Dougherty, with help from Mary Labate Rogstad. Thanks to our guests, Christine Hill, Luis Vivanco, and Glenn Eames. Glenn asked us to mention that he's seeking a new venue where he can display the 75 antique bikes in his collection. If you have any ideas, get in touch. Thanks also to Zach and Tom at the Old Spokes Home Community Workshop. Before Your Time comes out every month. Search for it and subscribe wherever you listen to podcasts. And if you like what you hear, tell a friend to check it out. You can find photos and artifacts related to this episode and a tutorial on how to mount a penny farthing on our website, beforeyourtime.org. Thanks for listening.